since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And together we are the Bix. Indeed. In this episode, we're talking about Twelfth Night. Uh, or What You Will. Or What You Will. The only one of Shakespeare's plays that has a, a subtitle or a, an alternate title. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good, good, good point there, Lindsay. Yeah. Um, this is one of the more well-known comedies, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely uh, withstood the t- test of time pretty mm-hmm. well. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy it, Lindsay. I think you thoroughly enjoy it. I enjoy productions of it. Reading it, not so much. Yeah, reading's not as fun. But it's it's a simple play, so it's not like it's. It, it, it feels like. Um, like a better version, a more grown-up, mature, maturely written version of Two Gentlemen of Verona, Verona yeah, or, yeah. you know, Comedy of Errors, any one of those earlier plays that dealt with the same kind of subject matter. Um, but this one just does it better, Yeah, I yeah. think. And there are various reasons for that that we'll get into. But first off, um, Aiden, it's, I, I believe it's your turn to do a plot synopsis for us. Indeed it is. Um, I'm going to get a... A timer up here. Are you ready to go? I am about as ready as can humanly be possible, uh, which is not at all. That's not a sentence. Sentences are for the weak, Lindsay. Just like this description is about to be. Yes. It's about to be very weak. It's 30 seconds, right? Yeah. All right. I'm ready when you are. I got to think of names. I'm ready, Lindsay. Go. So... Viola and Sebastian, brother, sister, twins, uh, shipwreck. They get stranded. They both think the other one's died. Uh, Viola winds up working for Orsino, who's a count. Uh, Sebastian winds up with a guy named Antonio. Uh, but most of it's Viola. Most of the story's about Viola. She becomes a boy called Cesario, and she goes and tries to woo Olivia, uh, who's the love interest of Orsino. But then uh, Olivia falls in love with Cesario slash Viola, and comedy ensues. Uh, there's a whole bunch of mistaken identities and oh that was not even close i didn't even not get even close. to you didn't get to the second plot line or, at all no you but you know what i before we did this you were like <laughs> i need to figure out the names i need to know the names and you you did fairly well with the names i have to say you're that's maybe a small consolation better? for a person who's terrible with but names, you did so. only you did only talk about one of the plot lines and you only got about halfway through the play so all around fail. Yeah, yeah. Um but yes. <laughs> I grant that. <laughs> we have we, we kind of figured there's there's three main plots to this story mm-hmm. and uh and Aiden elucidated um half of one. <laughs> half of one of them. Um so we'll get into that a little bit, but first let's let's do it just a brief history of the play. Yep. Um it was written around 1601, 1602, uh, around the time he's writing Hamlet, Charles and Cressida, some of these uh later plays that um that are where we are in our chronology. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that thought. <laughs> it's kind of dumb. But yes, we're in the we're in the we're in the early 1600s yes. now. Um, and there's I was actually reading there's some speculation that Shakespeare may have written this specifically for the Twelfth Night celebrations, uh, and that um, it may have been written for a, an actual visiting dignitary named Orsino who was oh, visiting really? the court of Queen Elizabeth. Very interesting. Um, but it's possible that that's not true, that that's just a, a fanciful idea. But it, it's, it does borrow from this um, uh, Christian festival of Twelfth Night, which um, is the 12 days after Christmas, yeah. ending on the Feast of Epiphany, I believe, which is when the Magi... Uh, arrive to bestow gifts upon the baby Jesus. So, um, and it's kind of this this time of like carnival, right? Yeah, yeah. where anything goes, kind anything of stuff, goes. Yeah. yeah, and you'll typically see in in these times um, a Lord of Misrule, a young boy who would be, you know, the puck like character who would, you know upend social norms it's it, this is the perfect play for that kind of time period right mm-hmm. um so 
even though there's mention in the play of Midsummer Madness, which harkens back to a Midsummer Night's Dream yeah. and, and plays like that, this is a very uh, carnivalesque type atmosphere that the play is really um, playing with. Yeah, and, and they, they do that through so many, upending so many of those social norms regarding gender and class structure and social structure and that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, there's there's not a lot to talk about in the play, but I think we've, We've got four, I think, four major themes we want to kind of dive into. Um, before we do that, Aiden, do you want a little bit more time to explain well, some of the plots that are going on in the play? <laughs> well, I think it's just I think it's worth mentioning that there are these three distinct plots, yeah. and they really vaguely tie into each other, and then they all kind of come to a head at the end. Although yeah. the Malvolio uh, plotline is just kind of dropped in there, and we we commented on that when we watched the '96 uh, theatrical production, Trevor Nunn production, that yeah. it feels very kind of odd that it ends on the Malvolio note, whereas the play itself is yeah generally pretty funny. And and we commented on this when we were watching that that film version as well, is that that film was very dark and serious um, in places. The second half really did punch up some up of the comedy, bit. but yeah. it was a very dour film. Yes, and. So, reading the play, it do, did it feel as jarring to end on the Malvolio plot? Yes. It did? Yes. I, I think it is. I think it's jarring in every case. Yeah. I think the only way is that it's it's such a high level of comedy slash pathos at the end when yeah. Sebastian and uh, Viola are reconciled and everybody's yeah. happy and it's all, oh, well, that was so kooky. Well, how so crazy? And then Malvolio comes in being most grievously wronged. Yes. It's just totally an abrupt shift. It it's, feels like the Merchant of Venice. The yeah, way that, a little bit. But the way that modern audiences interpret it with this, yes. this uh, sadness about Shylock's yeah. ultimate fate. Yes. You kind of get that feeling of Malvolio. It, it kind of hangs over thing. But, but I read also that at the time there were people who... Um, we're enamored with this Malvolio plot. And even, I believe, one of the King James's, the first or second, I can't remember, okay. wrote in his diary or, or had in his copy of the, the play that he had, he crossed out the title and wrote Malvolio. Like, it was the play of Malvolio. Like, yeah. his story captivated people's minds. At the time, Malvolio, being a Puritan character, I think probably would have felt very, very yeah. recognizable to people. Yeah. So maybe yeah. that's why. But yeah, for us as a modern audience, it seems that Malvolio story seems like it's not part of this play. It shouldn't be part of this play. Well, it, it does it does fit in thematically in a couple ways. There's there's still like, and we'll get to this in, in a little while, but there's still themes of like his love for Olivia and his duty to her and some of the deception that goes on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mirrors there's, the deception in the yes. main love love story. Exactly. I guess. And like, yeah, and there's the comedic aspects of like the the misbegotten letter and stuff like yeah. that. Like there's still elements of it that make it feel like the, it's an integral part of this play but at the same time there's that pathos to it yeah well and there's 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 a just that that the tonal shift of uh, that storyline starts off being a very comedic one mm-hmm. and then it goes to a very dark place very very quickly and it's it's just an odd feeling to come out on on that note yeah um and and again referencing the 96 version it, it it kind of works because the first half of that movie was so dark and and kind of uh brooding mm-hmm. uh but most of the productions we've seen 12th night is a pretty mirthful play there's yeah. a lot more comedy of it uh even like orsino is often played as like a pretty silly figure like he's yeah. so in love's throws that he cannot possibly do anything and like let music be, if haunts is about on stage yeah 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 and yeah. and like that opening line of his like if yeah. music be the food of love play on like most of the time that's him being like over dramatic and sweeping and, and everything and and in here when eventually you got around to that line it was very dour and and tragic he's like oh I can take no more of this love stuff. And it's yeah. like, it was, it, it's a very odd kind of choice in that production in particular, but um, it does make that Malvolio scene at the end kind of work because there's been this undercurrent of very serious uh, harm that's possible right. throughout. And then Malvolio is kind of uh, a representation of where that lines up. 
Um, just a just a nag on that ninety six production because yeah, I didn't want this episode to be a total <laughs> nag fest about the film. We didn't love the film. We didn't but love the film, but there's uh, there's, there's some definitely elements. some good elements to it, and it's one of the plays we've seen quite often um, performed here in Edmonton, but also at the Globe Theater in twenty seventeen. There was a an interesting production that we saw, so it's it's a good play to watch. It's easy to kind of understand, but um, and there's some funny, just hilarious moments sure. and stuff. Yeah. To get back to these plot lines, though, yeah. so you started off talking about the Viola Cesario Olivia love Ouroboros that's going on there um where yeah Viola as Cesario is um besotted with Orsino and Orsino is besotted with Olivia and Olivia is besotted with Cesario then Malvolio who is Olivia's butler butler I don't know head head of the house head of the house I guess yeah yeah um he's Involved with this uh, group of underlings, the Mariah, Sir Toby, Sir Andrew, Festy, Fabian. Well, they're not really underlings, except for Maria and Fabian. Sir Toby is kind of a social equal yeah, well, to... Yeah, so he's yeah. Um, Olivia's uncle. Yes. Sir Toby is Olivia's uncle. Sir Andrew is his friend. Yes. But they associate with Mariah, who is a uh, house... Uh, made as well yeah. and Festy is the fool and Fabian is some other kind of groundskeeper uh, yeah some type, so yeah. these guys are all in their second plot the third plot line involves Antonio and Sebastian yes so Sebastian is Viola's brother um, presumed dead he thinks she is dead as well um, but he's met up with this guy named Antonio who has saved his life and now feels that he is beholden to Sebastian in yeah. some way and um, and he's yeah. He's facing certain harm if he returns to Illyria because he's fought against the Illyrian army. Yes. So he's putting his life on the line for Sebastian. And there's lots of talk um, we'll get into, I think, when we talk about the gender um, aspect of this play. Um, it's a very homoerotic, or yeah. it can be very homoerotically charged yeah. relationship. So those three plots kind of intersect. I think the Antonio Sebastian plotline is a distant third in terms of yeah. the the other Screen two. And stuff, yeah. yeah, most of it is is Orsino, Cesario, slash Viola, and Olivia. Yeah. And um and I think that's kind of where we should start. The the first major theme being love. Love. First line of the play, if music be the food of love, play on, as yes. Aiden said. Um people are obsessed by love in this play. <laughs> it's like the be all end all of existence. Yes, it is. Right? It and it's it's a typically Shakespearean kind of form of love. It's it's the sighing and the oh, I love you so Petrarchan much. Petrarchan sonnet. It's Petrarchan. Yeah, exactly. Sunsets and yeah, and, and instant falling in love. Like uh, Olivia yeah. falls for Cesario like, in like instantly. Instantly, uh, you get the same sense that Orsino kind of did the same with Olivia. Well, I was going to ask you, Aiden, because I. N- Having read the play, having watched several productions, I don't understand why Orsino loves Olivia. Do they have a history? Because it yeah. really does seem like Olivia existed in Illyria, but now she's sad. Her father died a year ago. Her now her brother's dead. dead, and Orsino's just like fawning over her. Like, what is there about Olivia that that Orsino is so in love with? Could be her money. There's there's <laughs> always that opportunity. No, sure, like, cause, I, guess. I mean, this is. One of the more interesting parts about Olivia's character and her situation is that she is the head of the household. She runs the estate. Yeah. It is her land because she has no male uh, family, except right. for Sir Toby, for some reason, doesn't get to take over. I don't know how the, yeah. the laws work. But um, so she she is she, the master of her own domain. Right. She is the, she has a choice to make about who she loves. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't love Orsino. Well, and, and the fact that she's even given a choice is interesting. Exactly. Too. Well, but, again, because she has no male figures to tell her what to do. Exactly. Yeah. And that, I think that's kind of... Uh, Interesting, especially when you consider Malvolio's role in her life, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, Orsino, to me, feels like if Romeo had grown up and had still been obsessed with Rosalind. Like, it feels very, like, (laughs) infatuation-like teenager love, right? Definitely. Puppy love. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much like, I don't really know you, but I've seen you a couple of times yeah. and I, I love you. I, yeah. I need you in my life. And it, it's an invented love that exists in his head. Yeah. And okay. the fact that he, he switches so quickly, I think, 
is a testament to that similar to romeo again when as soon as he sees juliet and begins talking with her who who was her name again rosalind rosalind i yeah, just said yeah rosalind. exactly oh my well God. no i was being oh, romeo there but, I see. but my name my memory is terrible as well so i would have understood that. um so yeah it does seem like it's it's kind of an invented love which also seems to strike olivia when it comes to cesario same question mm-hmm. what is there about cesario that olivia is so i mean he speaks eloquently cesario yes. does present himself and present his master's arguments in a very poetic kind of way yeah. um in the the Trevor Nunn adaptation, Viola and Sebastian are performers, so there's a certain actorial quality to yeah. Viola's presentation of Cesario. Um, but the the idea that um, Olivia would just, after swearing off men entirely, would fall for this young man who comes to her door, it does seem it, it beggars belief a yeah. little bit. Um, so same kind of thing. There there seems to be this exalted kind of uber romantic love that people are striving for but do they ever really get to the heart of love right yeah and and i i think about a character like you know or <laughs> beatrice and benedict who really yeah. seem to have a depth of emotion and, and care for one there, another yeah. um there are a few other characters i think we could maybe even you know reference lady macbeth and macbeth i suppose yeah that's a more um, fulsome relationship at right least, yeah. where there's at least some kind of equality here this is all love in the eye of the beholder kind yeah. of thing right i don't have a lot of faith that the loves in this play are gonna last no you know the tests of time <laughs> well and that's right? and that's one of the things that uh the characters even themselves bring up well in particular Sino when he's discussing men's love for yeah. women you know it's it doesn't last necessarily uh women are best to be you know they have to marry you have to marry a young woman because you know her, her beauty is, will fade her as a flower there so there, <laughs> it's it's a very kind of inconstant look at love yeah. generally um there's surprisingly few references to cuckoldry despite this uh overwhelming uh mm. sense of a short-term love yeah. um and the play does nothing to challenge that interpretation of love like all the characters who wind up together do so quickly very very quickly yeah. i mean uh sebastian marries olivia after she just asked him to and he's never met her before he's, he's like, like sure why yeah, not let's get married you seem rich <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tap that <laughs> exactly it's 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 a crazy kind of uh shallow 12th nighty kind of yeah. love you yeah. know it does play into the whole ethos of the play mm-hmm. um i think they're the only kind of counterpoint uh if there is one maybe and it, again it kind of depends on the production is uh sir toby and mariah especially in the 96 production, I think other productions we've seen, they kind of, it's kind of implied that they have always, they, there's a lot of long glances. Like mm-hmm. they've been in this household long, for a long time. They're both attracted to each other. They both want to be together, but because of social distinctions, probably they've never been able to. Right. Uh, and then eventually at the end, they kind of wind up. Ha- well, they marry They get other, married. Right? Yeah. So, in the end. But they're also older. Yes. I mean, Sir Toby is definitely uh, a generation removed from yes. Olivia. And Mariah, you get the sense she's yeah, also she's an around. older woman. Yes. So, I mean, maybe there's a sense that um, the wisdom of age, although you see none of that in, in any of their other interactions or the yeah. way that they purport themselves yeah. or comport themselves. And that was right. Yeah. The way they carry on (laughs) in the rest of the play doesn't suggest any kind of age-related wisdom. Um, But they do seem to have maybe, maybe you're right, maybe that is a little bit of a counterpoint where this this relationship may um, have been unrequited or or had to be shuffled off to the side for a really long time and now it can be finally realized. Yeah. Right? Under this revelry kind of shit. There's also... um, uh, Malvolio's love for Olivia, which really comes out in Act Three, it doesn't really have a basis anywhere else, right? It does seem like it comes yeah, out of left field a little bit. A, a little bit. I think there's hints in their interactions. I think again, well, uh, it could be played that. It way, It can maybe. be played that way. I mean, there's nothing like outright, but he definitely, mm-hmm. yeah. It, but it's almost like like the suggestion that she might return love for him. Yes, is, is what takes. is all it yeah. takes for him to suddenly spiral and think, oh my gosh, I could be count of this whole. Yeah, yeah you know, great estate. And um, and that that does seem like it happens fairly quickly. Maybe another counterpoint might be um, the way that Viola 
as Cesario falls for Sino. Well, let's let's talk about that because I okay. kind of clump that under a second category of love okay. relationships here, which is unrequited love, okay. which is or unidirectional love, perhaps right. you could call it. And I, I kind of clump uh, Malvolio for Olivia in there, um, or Sino for Olivia, uh, Olivia as well, um, and Olivia for... Or Cesario. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, Mariah for Sir Toby even in the early days is kind of like that. It's, again, I'm thinking heavily on the 96 mm-hmm. Trevor Nunn production. Um, so there's this kind of like, um, yeah, the, this unrequited love, and it's 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 this own kind of very fanciful, um, like you, well, you summed it up best. It's it's Romeo's love for Rosalind in right. his head. It's just mm-hmm. this. Um, I see this, you. I love you. I I need you in my life. Yeah, it's very passionate. Exactly. Yeah, but it's not connected to an actual relationship. Okay. It is connected to nothing. a desire. A desire. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and I think that's. Most of the love falls I think, into Yeah, that. I think that's most of the love. And we don't really get a hint. Or we get hints at the other kind um, and the relationships that do actually uh, ferment and become real, I guess. Ferment's a weird word to use in that sentence. But, uh, you know, that, that, that more fulsome kind of love is given very little credence, very little screen time. And I think it's a part of the play, especially through Feste, to point that out to us, that uh, he's always singing love songs right. and they're always silly and kind of ridiculous and the lyrics don't really point to real long-lasting love. It's very much uh, short-term desired love. I think this play is just obsessed with uh, focusing on that and and not really uh, seeing it t- come to fruition. So is there... Are you thinking that there's a larger commentary to be made about um, love in general? Or is it a comment on love that's entered into during a time of silliness, like a Twelfth Night yeah. Epiphany celebration? That, based on the title alone, I would say yes, it's more the, the latter. I think it's... it's. Don't count on your spring break fling becoming, you know, a 50-year-long marriage? Yes. Okay. I, I think that's I think that's safe to say. But I think there's also the, the third kind of love, which is the friendship love. Right. Which is because of the gender bending and the oddities of this play yeah it can easily be construed and misconstrued into the uh romantic yeah the romantic love and the the unidirectional um unrequited love yeah as i well. think yeah that's kind of where orsino's love for cesario really sits yeah it's not cesario or viola's love for orsino it's the other yeah. way orsino seems to initially have a great deal of affection for cesario because they're bros they're bros yeah they're, bros. they're, they're he's just a good servant he he does his duty well um and and there are some hints of longing, more sexualized, mm-hmm. erotic longing that Orsino directs towards Cesario, and that Viola as Cesario um, kind of hints at towards Orsino. But because yeah. of that, the gender question, um, and depending on how it's played, it, it kind of is a question that's left to the audience to interpret or to a director to interpret. Um, yeah, Antonio and Sebastian are another relationship yeah where it's it i've put kind of the friendship love in air quotes because it's 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 very homoerotic love Mm -hmm. um that kind of masquerades as friendship or it's Mm -hmm. friendship that could be interpreted as homoerotic well and i think an elizabethan an elizabethan audience would have remembered or would have recognized the um the idea that two men can love each other deeply the way that antonio and sebastian Mm -hmm. would um so it's not like this is an aberrant relationship. No. It's a very natural relationship yeah. for these two men to have for one another. And it really doesn't matter if there was a sexual component to it. Um, because at the end of the play, when um, Sebastian ends up marrying Olivia, so almost sight unseen, yeah. really, Antonio's <laughs> happy for them. And yeah. it's like, that's the end of the play. Everything's good, right? Yeah. It's There's no um, bitterness and jealousy there that uh, might have been hinted at in... For example, um, uh, some of Shakespeare's sonnets, where the yeah. the the fair youth has directed his love elsewhere, and the the author slash narrator slash voice of the the sonnet is upset about this. Yes. There doesn't seem to be any of that happening here. So I think that points to the fact that it makes it easy for us to see this as just a friendship. But if you did choose to see this as kind of a, a sexual relationship, it's um. It fits in with that Elizabethan idea of male bonding, mm-hmm. right? Definitely, yeah. Well, yeah, it's like a grown-up 
version of Two Gentlemen of Verona again, where they, right. they're best friends who, you know, ostensibly could have had a sexual relationship or, or some form of, of love between them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of underpins it and it, it complicates things a little bit. Yeah. So if we're talking about same-sex desire mm-hmm. in this play um, and, and understanding that the Elizabethans didn't have the same kind of hang-ups that a modern audience does when it comes to or the same labels or, or the same labels that. even exactly yeah. um how does this play approach it because and, and i'm thinking specifically about this this kind of interesting ending where um orsino knows that viola is viola but refers to her yes. as, boy as boy and as cesario and she's not given a chance to change back into her women's weeds because the sea captain has her clothes and there's just plot contrivances that keep her as a boy she's the only cross-dressing character um, yeah. female character who doesn't get a chance to change back into her um women's clothing at the yeah. end yeah. so is that shakespeare's tacit um endorsement of same-sex attraction because remember at this point a young boy would have been playing viola playing cesario so this young boy would have been wearing his own clothes on stage this wouldn't have been um a costume really anymore um which is rare for a female character in shakespeare to be given male clothing and male name and not have to revert back to female at the end so yeah yeah, how do you how do you interpret that yeah i definitely think it's I put it in my notes as this is the gayest play yet in Shakespeare, but right. just because it is between Antonio and Sebastian's, I do adore thee so mm-hmm. uh, line and Antonio's like huge steadfast devotion to Sebastian after he also already saved Sebastian's life. He's just going to, you know, yeah, like there, give everything to him yeah. even to the point of his own death. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like he's literally willing to kill himself or to put himself up to death yeah. for uh, this man. Yes, there's the friendship angle, but it it easily feels like you can uh, guide this play to a point where uh, the homosexual tendencies are just like right in your face and uh, easily adopted. Yeah, well, I mean, of course there is other ways, but 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 it's easy to to go that direction. Yes, absolutely. I I think it is uh, the most open to uh, that type of interpretation, definitely. I don't know what Shakespeare was going for, particularly, but... uh, I'm just asking you to speculate wildly (laughs) about something that happened 500 years ago. (laughs) 400 years ago. Fair enough. I I think it's also interesting, like, again, the the Trevor Nunn production was very heavily on, like, there's some pretty strong lesbian vibes from uh, Olivia to Cesario as well. Um, Right. Like she does not really pass for a man very well uh, in this, the the setting and, and the structure that's set up within the play. Yeah. Um, so, and the fact that uh, Olivia is so quick to, uh, to fall in love with uh, Viola and so quick to uh, comment on Viola's, feminine features as well Mm. like everyone's aware of viola's uh non-typical masculinity i would say well that's where orsino has that great speech where it's like your throat is is so like a woman's and your face is so like a woman lips of diane's right 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 yeah everybody really comments on on cesario's femininity yeah which I mean, I it it really doesn't seem like anybody is fooled, but they are. They're totally well, they totally buy that well, this is a, a just a, a feminine male, I guess. Exactly, and I think that's where the play kind of lends itself to more of a, a an openly gay reading, is because everybody's commenting on how right. non masculine Cesario, uh, Cesario is, yeah. and yet they they happily participate in the yes. belief that he's, he's a man. And it's, it seems like, it seems like willful ignorance or, or a willful choosing to disobey your own senses in order to play along and get access to what you really want, which is Viola slash uh, Cesario. Mm-hmm. The, the two people who fall in love with uh, them, <laughs> I guess, because yeah. uh, she has these two roles uh, is, are Olivia and Arsino. Right. And they both fall, fall in love with the same person. Uh, in a, in a strange way that, right. that just very happens very quickly. I don't know. I, it's it's a very interesting well, yeah, play and, that way. And and in saying that, it, it almost seems like the um, the Olivia Cesario relationship is the more um, 
openly same-sex one just because there's it because Olivia is able to see through the masculine disguise and is not troubled at all yeah by the femininity she finds there um it it almost seems like that that same-sex attraction is more overt than um Orsino commenting on how I can I can almost picture Cesario uh you're so feminine like you know if I squint and just like fudge the features a little bit you could be a woman and I could be with you you know what I mean it's it's less same sex in a way yeah do you understand what I'm what I'm getting at there right yeah, yeah This is all entirely leaving aside the Sebastian Antonio scenes, which are very, there's no pretense there. They're both male. They're both, um, you you know, Antonio's love for Sebastian is love for a man. It's not, yeah, it's, it's not like he thinks that Sebastian's a woman. Although if, if everybody can be convinced by a feminine Cesario that, you know, maybe Sebastian is more effeminate than it really doesn't matter. It really literally does not matter. Exactly. The idea is it's just it gets confusing and it starts to get a little bit weird and wibbly if you if you look too hard at it. It's like a magic eye poster that doesn't quite fit. Um I think it's just more fun than anything. We don't have to yeah. like try and force some kind of social justice narrative onto it, but, no, it's, but it, it's fun to think about. Yeah, definitely. It, and it's fun to watch. That's what that's what gives the the play so much joy yeah. is that the fact that these characters are in this this headspace where these things are allowed and mm-hmm. it's open to be explored and you can have you can ask have us asking these questions of the play yeah. 400 years later because you're in Twelfth Night you're in yeah. this carnival atmosphere and you are allowed to question things and mm-hmm. do things that you wouldn't normally do and mm-hmm. uh, move towards love in unorthodox ways yeah and that's what they do just like on spring break I'm gonna keep coming back to spring break because you really should yeah having never had a spring break fling no, no, I haven't. You're the closest thing. I've yeah, exactly. Spring break yeah, we're each other's spring break. <laughs> um, speaking of gender, there's uh, some interesting ideas and, and representations of, of gender and conversations about gender. Specifically, I think um, Orsino, we kind of alluded to it already, yeah. his um, dismissal of of women's love. Yeah. They're just not capable of yeah. it. And Cesario has to convince him that women do feel a depth of emotion because Viola feels a depth of emotion. So it must be true that women feel a depth of emotion. But Cesario has to speak for womankind um, in order to convince Orsino of the error of his way. The error of his ways, I guess. And yeah, I think, I don't know. What do you make of Orsino's comment about women's capacity for love and affection? Like, why would he want to put himself into a relationship with Olivia knowing that she is... You know, she doesn't want him. Yeah. And even if she did, her love would be inconstant and she's going to get ugly anyway. Like, it seems like he's almost talking himself out yeah. of relationships with e- women. Every time I read this play or watch it, I'm always a little thrown by that because it doesn't make any sense. It's literally, I mean, I guess you could read it as him trying to convince himself that he, maybe he shouldn't be in love anymore and he right. should move on. Um, but it doesn't make any sense because, yeah, it's, it's very much, I mean... Cesario's or Orsino, sorry, is not the most uh, self-conscious or empathetic individual in the play. As soon as he no. finds out that uh, <laughs> Cesario's married ostensibly Olivia, he just blows up at him too. Like yeah. there, there's, there's no. Uh, he's he's a stable genius, isn't he? He's a yeah, very stable. Sure, let's genius. let's let's put it that way. He's he's not a nice man. Let's no. let's put it that way for Orsino. Um, so. I guess there could just literally be like, well, I want her. Mm-hmm. And that's the extent of his love. He doesn't actually, again, it's that short term right. unrequited love. He's never actually been in the relationship with Olivia. He yeah. likes the idea of Olivia. Yeah, yeah. And he wants to have that idea yeah. in his possession. Yeah. That's what love is for yeah. him. Okay. So in that case, I guess it would make sense for him to be like, well, women can't have this because only men can own things. So right. men can own the women and their love. That's, and that's feelings. What, and yeah. yeah. Emotion generally. Just makes sense. Um, on the flip side of that, I think you have um, this violent tendency for the men yeah. in the play to erupt into violence. Yeah. Um, Sir Andrew is goaded very easily into <laughs> fighting Cesario. Yeah. And Cesario um, <laughs> is a woman who is pushed into this, this sword fight with this bumbling, you know, 
fop. Buffoon? Yeah, he's he's <laughs> he's an absolute yeah, just a just a, a total jerk. Yeah. Um but I mean, I guess the the idea that that Cesario, who is Viola, a woman, mm-hmm. can hold her own in battle, right? Even if it's just a silly little duel. <laughs> yeah, with Sir Andrew, who's, with not, Sir Andrew, who's not known yes. to be a real warrior. No, yes. but still, I mean, a woman held her own there. And that's something that goes against the, the prevailing wisdom mm-hmm. about what women are capable of. I mean, this is a time when the idea of cross-dressing was seen as abhorrent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, socially... Like, yeah, totally it, it, unacceptable. You know, yeah. it, it turns women into uh, "quote unquote" hermaphrodites. They were, <laughs> you know, it was it was not uh, something that people did. Yeah. But here we have, you know, Viola as Cesario giving eloquent speeches about women's capacity for love and affection, and then kicking the shit out of Sir Andrew Agucheek, you know, in a in a battle that like it's not. It's it's a really unconventional portrayal of femininity. Yeah, and weirdly, it, it is, and I think it. I think masculine it, femininity. Well, there you go. well, both. I mean, yeah. both genders. It's it's um, again, it ties back to Olivia being the master of her own household. Again, right. she's in a masculine position. Sure. There's there's this whole upending of uh, the social order, mm-hmm. uh, and. I think Orsino is usually viewed as as somewhat pathetic. He he's not a very good man because he's so lovesick. Like he's yeah. he's really not seen as as the take charge type. Um, the only one who's really super masculine here and and backs it up is uh, Sebastian and Antonio. Uh, the two of them fight and they win, <laughs> and they well, they, they, Viola they, fights and wins. Well, it's a, different productions. Now. I think the stage instructions are just like they battle and then someone interrupts it right away. Right. I think you know it's it's open to interpretation as to how that uh, the duel itself actually goes. I think the nun one has her holding her own pretty well. Yeah. Um, but you know it is it's again this this sense that the gender roles are confused and. Um, the men who are normally violent are also prone to violence by women. It is ultimately on Mariah's orders that Malvolio is imprisoned. Right. You know, like, and she's a servant, same as him. Like, yeah. there, there is this whole uh, sweeping change around who has power and where violence comes from. Uh, and the only ones who don't really interact with it uh, or who interact with it in a normal sense are Antonio and Sebastian. Right. At the end, they both you know, pick, take up arms and, and fight and right. box each other's, the Sir Toby and Andrew's faces in and stuff. Right. That is, and they're the characters who ultimately uh, kind of embody like the traditional relationships, and, and, despite being in a probably gay relationship themselves. Well, and, but they come from without, right? They're not yeah. part of the, they really are shuffle to the side. This, yes. This whole story. So it's, it's almost like, um, there's this it's like the forest in midsummer where yeah. the stuff that happens in the forest stays in the forest yeah. and it's only when it's exposed to the light of an athenian morning that yeah. um that order is restored in a yeah. way and yeah. and it's almost like sebastian and antonio come in as these um they they reset forces. Yeah, yeah and and yeah. and they reset the social structure again yeah. at, by the end of the play because it's upon the reveal that Sebastian is alive and and is Viola's brother um and that Viola's a woman that everything is is more or less on its way to to being restored. Even Malvolio is restored in a, in a sense um and and gets his power back. Um I think related to that yeah. is our third theme. Thank of, you. Uh, we, you were going there. I was exactly okay. going there. So yep. it's, uh, you know, duty and uh, class and the social structures. I mean, they are, we've already touched on all of them, but I think the the class one is, is an interesting uh, aspect because that is where the Malvolio plot line connects with the Olivia Cesario uh, Orsino yeah. plotline is because Malvolio is also sees himself as a potential suitor. So does Sir Andrew. Sir Andrew, mm-hmm. that that's the reason he's at the yeah. house is to woo uh, Olivia. Olivia as well. And Malvolio's hope of wooing Olivia really uh, would rely on a complete breakdown of the social structure. He's he's her servant. Literally, right. you would never marry down a class man or woman 
uh, at all. Well, but he does mention that there was a, a neighboring family yes. where this happened in. So it's like yes, he has to he has to convince himself yeah, that exactly. it's possible yeah. first before he allows himself to think it's possible. Um, he has to bring that up. So it's not like it's wholly unexpected. Well, but... yeah, it's again him convincing himself yeah. though. He's like, oh, I heard of the story once. You know, yeah, it, yeah. like I don't think that's exactly how it's phrased, but you know, there is. Um, a limited flexibility within these social structures sure. usually. And the fact that the play doesn't care about them at all and just throws these characters together into this, this stew of uh, service and duty to each other is, is really interesting. Well, and it's doubly interesting because the play condemns Malvolio for stepping out of this social structure mm-hmm. that he is part of, yeah. but doesn't condemn... Uh, yeah, Viola for or Olivia for loving each other yeah. doesn't condemn Orsino for loving Cesario. Yeah, right. So there are certain that that's part of a social structure, right? The cross dressing, gender bending um, aspect would have been funny to Elizabethans, but it would have been verboten. Yeah, but it's way worse for a servant to marry yes. his better. Yeah, well, and that and, that is interesting to me. Well, and the one outright reference to class is actually from Olivia to Cesario when she asks like what is your parentage mm-hmm. and he says well I'm a gentleman uh, you know that's that's really yeah. interesting because it's it's the one rule that they can't break so yes. she that's all she cares about is like you're a gentleman oh well then now I'm interested you look like, like a lady but you're a gentleman so I'm gonna let's go <laughs> well, for let's it, do right? it. Yeah. right and that's that's the interesting part is that it's very English of course that, oh yeah you know you can never cross the, the class lines above all else upstairs and downstairs never the twain <laughs> shall meet yes it is <laughs> literally uh down abbey all over again but it's also interesting the way that uh service and duty are connected to love like the for instance uh cesario well exactly yeah yeah uh antonio swears loyalty to sebastian and loves him Mm -hmm. uh cesario loves uh orsino and malvolio loves olivia in this way of I will do anything for you. I serve at your pleasure. I serve at your pleasure. Whether that whether that becomes romantic or not is kind of up to the fates, perhaps. But I I I will express my love to you through service. Right. And to the point where, especially for uh, Cesario Viola, Viola, God, I can't say her name right. Uh, you, she's going into a situation where she knows she's being wooed by Olivia, but she's she'll continue going because she loves Orsino that much. Yes. She will do that service of putting herself. Maybe even in harm's way if, you know, like Sir Andrew, another suitor comes right. in and thinks uh, he's muscling in on his turf, right? But it's all in service of this great, great. undying love yeah. that Viola has for Orsino. Which is also based on class because Orsino's a duke and Sebastian's or Viola slash Cesario's landless. And, you know, right. like th- there's still there's still a hierarchical hierarchical Hier- hierarchical hierarchical words are hard uh structure to this service and love uh combination and Mm -hmm. i I think it's just it's it's interesting to note on i don't think it means too much really within the 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 structure of the play but it is it's a typically english representation of it i would say well and and the one um relationship that does seem to cross break destroy those boundaries is sir toby's and mariah's and and yeah. they are not seen on stage again yes. after that marriage or yeah. or whatever it's happened. a reference to the marriage yeah right? it's yeah. like somebody i think festi just drops it yeah. at the yeah. end and just yeah. says yeah they got married yeah. um but they're they're not seen again so it's it is um it's almost like once those norms have been d- broken destroyed stepped away from um you're not granted a presence anymore yeah and that could yeah. be um how the ending with malvolio is is eventually kind of addressed because he does come back from this cruel cruel prank that is played on him um and and he does say he will be revenged and it does seem like that's a threat that should be taken very yeah. seriously but he is he is just a servant so what can he actually do to affect that revenge we don't know, but I believe that he will. Yeah. And um, and then he's, you know, let off stage or is, you know, leaves the stage and we don't see him again. The play resolves on a on a happy note, as yeah. all comedies do. But there's this lingering, you know, bitter taste, I guess, because of what happens to Malvolio. Yeah. Um, the prank that's pulled on Malvolio. Can we talk about that yeah. really briefly? Yeah. Because um, it's it does seem to 
fit into this social structure thing still, the classist distinctions as yeah. well. They're, they're, Mariah, Sir Toby, and Sir Andrew play this prank on Malvolio because he's haughty and a Puritan and... Yeah, he crashes kind of, their fun. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. Not a, he's not a nice person. He's a dour person who spoils all spoils all their fun and there's this there's this additional offshoot of like his betters sir andrew sir toby playing a prank getting very involved but it's mariah who sets it into motion and she's his equal almost which almost makes the cruelty even worse that that she's not you know she's just a servant yeah right she's not well respected she's never going to be a lady well, of the house or anything yeah until she marries sir toby but mm. um she she's the one who you know apes the handwriting of olivia in order to write this letter that convinces malvolio um among other things that you can have greatness thrust upon you right yeah. it's yeah. it's you know you weren't born with this you're just a servant, but here's some greatness. I've I've bestowed my love on you. If mm-hmm. you do all these things for me, you know, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a disturbing thing what happens to Malvolio. And I think it's good we're talking about this right after we did our mental illness episode. We didn't talk yeah, about Malvolio no, as a mentally is- ill character, but he's treated like the way the way that people who were considered mentally ill were treated he's locked away in a dark room and shackled to the wall and and can't express himself he has no way of communicating except through these slits in the wall and and he's gaslit until he he does seem to lose something of himself in this process and comes out on stage all you know dirty and bloodied and and then seeks revenge right and i think it's it's something that we've forgot to mention in the last in that mental health episode was the way that shakespeare understood very clearly like doing something like this someone can cause them to lose their mind sure like malvolio has to reiterate time and time again i am not mad Mm -hmm. um and they're like well you might go mad you know like there there's that there's that concern and that that uh fear underlying a lot of uh malvolio's actions and it's it's a very harrowing uh kind of experience that, mm-hmm. that they display on the on the stage uh, i just wanted to mention that that we, mm-hmm. didn't, we didn't cover that last episode but it, it was uh it's a very insightful take from the bard i guess you could yeah. say um but yeah i i agree Lindsay. like there's the the whole deception angle that's that's really only mostly directed at malvolio is uh it is very cruel and it's very heartless and it doesn't and again he's being punished for stepping out of line for stepping out of line but also for love like he he seems to genuinely love and direct his service towards olivia yeah um but because he steps out of that class line he is uh punished extraordinarily whereas Mm -hmm. sir toby also winds up loving someone from a different class um but gets away with it because he's a man in the higher class i I would maybe venture maybe it's kind of yeah. It's it's an odd it's an odd situation with Malvolio. Yeah, but I do think there's a class issue or a social structure issue that's going on there. That it's you know you can't talk about the social structure of the play without talking about um, the way that Malvolio is treated. Some are born great. Some achieve greatness. Sister. And some have greatness thrust upon them. So, uh, in keeping with this kind of idea of lies and trickery and deception um why is it so easy for malvolio to be tricked here i mean i I think i think it's it's an interesting question because he's not the only one being tricked right olivia is tricked by viola's um uh disguise Mm -hmm. so is orsino yeah everybody is. everybody is tricked by viola um and so it seems like it's it's what you what if if the lie supports what you want to believe already then it's easy to believe the lie it's almost desirable to believe the lie yeah it's almost desirable to believe the lie Mm -hmm. and uh and i think that um i think that's a that's a, a a curious human trait isn't it wouldn't you say that that we fall for things that sound too good to be true because we really, really want them to be true? Yeah. You know, it's easy to fall for a well, conspiracy I mean, yeah. theory 
or to fall for, you know, any kind of lie that that sounds believable or that fits with a pre-existing bias that we already hold. Well, and that's what makes that whole Malvolio scene work is the fact that you get his speech about you know, he imagines himself as the the count of the house yeah. uh, before he finds the letter. Yeah, exactly. Then he gets this confirmation by confirmational piece just hand dropped in front of him. Yeah. And suddenly he's like, yeah, oh, like, shit, oh, I totally could it. be the count. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's. Uh, and so extending that to the Viola Cesario situation, um, what does that say about Orsino and Olivia and their attitudes toward Cesario because if if it's so easy for them to believe that Cesario is a man even when all you know if seeing is believing it's easy to see that this is not a man right they want to believe that that Cesario is who he says he is yeah because they want that to be true yeah yeah right yeah and so it's it's it it colors the love that they feel for him in a way, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'd right? say so. By their own desires. Maybe Orsino yeah. is, you know, attracted on, on a deeper level to Cesario as a boy. And maybe Viola, um, or sorry, Olivia is attracted to the feminine parts of Cesario because she's a lesbian. Yeah. Because Orsino is gay. Yeah. I mean, it, it that, helps that reading i think a little bit more well yeah it's it's exactly it it's what makes that whole section make a lot more sense from a character point of view absolutely yeah yeah but it's interesting because the the one person who never gets punished at all despite being the most deceptive character (laughs) is viola herself uh just gets away with absolutely everything yeah survives the the duel uh survives being hounded by olivia survives being outed yeah exactly like, thrives in in being outed <laughs> exactly winds up marrying a duke somehow yeah you know like there's it, it's odd that the, the the play takes such pains to um absolve her of any guilt mm-hmm. for any of these actions despite being very duplicitous and uh seeking service when she couldn't where she shouldn't right. have uh and breaking all those social norms and lying and lying yeah about everything <laughs> yeah uh but also not lying a lot of what she said was too true sure. especially yeah, to yeah. orsino yeah but yeah it's 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 odd that that her character is the one who gets the best out of all situations um yeah it all it all comes up roses for her yeah, yeah. and and that's uh in keeping with this being the 12th night and a delightful comedy yes indeed two thumbs way up if I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So today's ancient bickerings, we thought we would uh, set aside the more comedic aspects of this play and deal with the one big lingering question that uh, I think most people walk away from the play yeah. wanting to answer. Does Malvolio get what he deserves? Yeah. Um, Aiden, do you have an answer for that question? I do. Uh, it's not a strong one, though. Okay. I have to say, I think he does to an extent. To okay. an extent. Okay. Only because he's a Puritan. <laughs> I'm uh, mostly joking, but also a little, uh, uh, not really, because I think that was, I think the, the bashing on him as a Puritan, I think is central to the, the moralism of the play. Right. Um, I think they get away with it because it is Twelfth Night and you can do this to a, a person who doesn't really, I don't think he deserves it in an ideal situation. I think within the play though, he is he gets what he deserves. Yeah, in, in an odd sense, he is the most straight-laced person who believes everything he sees, thinks the most highly of himself. I mean, so does Sir Andrew and Sir Toby a little bit. Um but he has he has the least reason to uh and he treats everyone else as though they're below him when he's actually in the lower class. I think the play wants you to not sympathize sympathize with him as much as we do today hmm. watching the play that that's kind of my interpretation is is the play wants you to think that yes he deserved this and i'll go back to the river city shakespeare uh free will players that we've uh seen why do we times. call it the river city shakespeare i don't know it's was not it ever called i don't think that? it was ever called that we just we just call started it calling it that um <laughs> but our local production that we saw when was that like it was a years long ago, time ago, something like that. But it's still one of my favorite plays. I remember it to this day. Uh, I remember laughing my ass off yeah. throughout that play, including even at the end. 
And I think that was the tone that we actually wanted to get. I think they played Malvolio as such an utter buffoon. Someone totally out of his social element, has no idea what's going on, which is the only way really that letter scene makes sense. I mean, if he was halfway as intelligent, he would be able to... He wouldn't reach and grasp for those connections M- that he eventually did. Oh, I that must mean Malvolio. Oh, yeah, like it's just right. that's so that's a level of stupid that that takes some some struggling to get. So I feel like the play can lead you down the path towards him perhaps deserving it. That's that's my interpretation. Lindsay, how about you? I disagree, and I think the only reason I do is because well, there's two reasons. I think um, the play does make him more relatable because of how quickly he believes this lie, Mm. because it fits in with what he already believes. I think that's something we've all experienced. And I think it's really hard to separate um, our, where, how we approach the play from uh, our interpretation of, of Malvolio's character. And I think in that sense, what happens to him is is so unbearably cruel and it goes so far beyond what a natural consequence would be i mean i That's think fair, yeah. i think you know if if mariah and sir toby and sir andrew and fabian and festy had all jumped out from behind the arbor and <laughs> said haha you've fallen for it you know as soon as he finished reading the letter or or stopped him on the way to seeing olivia all cross gartered and whatnot and said or you're an idiot or you even know? just like Ending it there, the imprisonment really doesn't make much sense. No. I mean, he he's made an ass of himself in front of his yeah. his lady. That should be enough. That's that's the con- that's that, the funny and part. And if they had yeah. left it there, yeah. if that had been the end, and 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 they had you know rectified the situation at that point, then I would have said absolutely he gets what he deserves because he he needed to be knocked down a peg. Did he need to be knocked down the whole ladder? I don't <laughs> think so. Like he at the end of the play is a shell of a man, and I think that that's at least how most productions have played it, and that's how I read it now. I can't help it because what is done to him is so dehumanizing, and it's it's. Um, He's put in solitary confinement for fuck's sake. Like yeah. he's he's denied <laughs> access to sunlight. Um, it's it's such basic human needs. You know, Abraham Maslow would be, <laughs> you know, just spinning in his grave thinking about this. Yeah. Um, you know, when you strip a, a person down to to that level, um, yeah, being because a buffoon, he's <laughs> yeah, simply because he he expresses uh. some desire for social climbing. I think it's a bit extreme, okay. and I and I do think that the that while I agree with you that the play wants to see him punished, I think the play also wants us to question if that punishment is just, legit yeah. because we end on juxtaposing such heights of happiness and and jolly. Yeah. Joviality, jollity. I don't know what the word I'm looking for yeah, is. One of them. But that, the comedy side, with this, I will be revenged yeah. from Malvolio. I just, I, I have a hard time reading that, it. Those otherwise. are very good points, Lindsay. Thank you. I, uh, I must concede the high ground. I think you're right. Thank you. Very well done. Very well argued. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I think I, my point was like no, I, on I, a bit of a ledge. Well, <laughs> to be no, honest, but, but. I, I can see I can see how you would arrive there. I mean, I can also see how you're wrong, but you know, big surprise. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. So, Lindsay, next we have fictional Shakespeare. Yeah, right? I think it's Shakespeare is a fictional character, so this will be a fun uh, exploration of. Um, all the different places in book, film, television, radio, perhaps, where Shakespeare has uh, been fictionalized in some way. And, and actually, there's a, a, some interesting stuff. I've already begun some research on this into some of the tropes that have come up as a result of Shakespeare being yeah. fictionalized. Yeah. And, uh, and there's interesting reasons, I think, you could theorize about why those... You know, in the absence of true biographical information, why do we um, think about a fictional character or fictionalizing Shakespeare in such a way? So that'll be yeah. a really interesting, an interesting conversation. Um, then after that, I believe it's Troilus it and Cressida. It is Troilus and Cressida is up Cressida. next. Yeah, so one of the oddest plays. Really in all not of Shakespeare. not 
performed very often. No. People As probably reasons don't. reasons that we will discuss, I'm Well, sure. yeah, but it, it's a great story. It's a story that most people know. I think yeah. the Trojan War and the face that launched a thousand ships and all of that plays into this story about um, these two sort of star-crossed lovers, in a sense, who yeah. get, you know, their their entire romance torn apart by this horrid war. Yeah. It's, so. it's, it's a, there's a, yeah, well, we'll, we'll talk about it yeah. a lot, but it's an interesting idea that I don't think is really ever connected with audiences the same way uh, it theoretically should. And we'll, we'll talk okay. about that. All right. um, and then Looking following that episode, we also have the lesser known plays, which of which Troilus and Cressida, I think, prompted us to slot that episode in there because <laughs> it's one of Shakespeare's lesser known plays. So yeah. we're going to talk a little bit about those. What as makes well. what makes a Shakespearean play popular? What why yeah. why do they why do some last and some don't? Yeah. I think yeah. will be a big question. We'll talk about so. So I hope you'll join us for those episodes, and we'll look forward to having you listen to us. Is that better, Lindsay? Yeah, I think so. see you next time. Yeah, it's almost like those YouTubers who are like, I'll see you in the next video. It's like, no, you won't. I'll see you, asshole. Uh, yeah, YouTuber. well, no, well, you, are you saying that to I'm me? saying that to you as a YouTuber. Well, yeah, but also me sitting across from you at our recording desk. No. I will see you yeah, the next time Yeah, but I'm not talking to you. Do... I'm talking to the audience. I this thought is you the were point, talking Lindsay. to me. This is why it's so confusing. I know. Why you have to stop. Stop. I'm stopping. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.